Distazapod number 278. This is a monumental time. I know I start a lot of Distazapods like that, but this time it happens to be true action figure of the millennia. January and February combined into one crate. They are leaving right now. They're shipping out of the warehouse. They're heading to you guys. I think this is going to be a much better experience. I'm very excited for people to get their boxes. Uh, I think we figured out the right formula moving forward. So hopefully you guys like what you signed up for. Um, At this point, I would tell you to go and uh, join the Patreon, but the top tiers are closed. So you're welcome to join at the $5 tier. You will get the ability to order any extras from the first crate that happened to come up. And uh, I think that's a pretty good deal as well. But uh, we are locked in place. We are moving forward. It's a very exciting time. Before I hop into questions today, I randomly watched a very weird movie that got served up um, as a suggested, and I never would have known about this movie, never would have picked it, but it seemed interesting enough. I watched it, and it ended up being a fantastic film. So I wanted to plant the seed in your guys' head. You can go and watch it. It's probably not for everybody, but it would be interesting to discuss this with other people because I found it to be a really, really fascinating film. This film is called Irma Vep, I-R-M-A space V-E-P, and it is a sort of, um, it's kind of a meta film, it's a film within a film, it is about the French film industry and them rebooting a very old black and white film, uh, Los Vampires, or La Vampire, whatever the fuck it is, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's really, really fascinating, it's very weird, Um, It is very French. It is very French cinema. So if you like that stuff, this might be uh, a good film for you. And I found myself entranced the entire time. It's there's not a lot that happens in it. It it is this very sort of mellow sort of viewing experience. And I think the film is more uh, to me known for what it doesn't show you than what it does. There are a lot of near misses within a film. You know, a, a lot of the thrust of most successful films is you like a main character and you want the main character to push through adversity and get what they want. And this film kind of sets up these things you really want to see happen to the main character and it's just a couple of like near misses. And it it should leave you unsatisfied, but it kind of feels perfect, like that's life. Like yes, of course, they wouldn't get what they want. That doesn't necessarily make sense. But in any case, really fantastic film. Not going to be for everybody. I think if, you know, your diet consists of mostly Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars, this is, you know, probably not going to be too appealing to you. But if you want something a little different, if you kind of want to get shaken out of your vegetable torpor, uh, I think this is a good film. I thought it was really beautifully acted. And one of the best uses of cinematography in a film I've ever seen. And it is not extravagant sets or anything it is just sort of Paris and rooftops and the rain just one of the most beautiful beautiful pieces of cinema and it is on film it's from 1996 so it is sort of the pre-digital boom and the film grain is gorgeous if, if you really sort of appreciate films on that granular level um, I think you will really get a kick out of this and 
it left me with a lot of questions, so that's why I'm sort of queuing it up, because I'd like other people to see this film. I had never heard of it, and uh, I would love to discuss it with people who, you know, are sort of into this sort of thing. So with that out of the way, we're going to go ahead and we're going to tackle questions for this week. question of the week is from our good friend Lane, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time here because I think this is a great question. I think they've queued up quite a complex sort of scenario, and I want to spend my time with it. So we're going to start with this one, and they write, how much would it cost to copy-paste some of the most ironic, uh, sorry, iconic and versatile heads from the Night of the Slice lineup into a new tooling designated for customs? I figure that might be an interesting way to have a Swiss army knife sprue of strictly head sculpts. I can't recall seeing a desert rat head outside of its base body since the torso and legs have a sort of exclusive compatibility with each other. It's super cool and would love to see it pop up elsewhere. Same deal with say the Bugman head, Old Knight, Device Ninja, HK, I could go on. Definitely would be insane to get a mixed lineup of something like that, free of having to commit to a full-on figure and later be moved to use that as a full release. I know I would personally love the head packs and assume the Cherubium isn't tied to any base figure either. Too long didn't read, is it possible to create a tooling with only existing head molds? So this is a really great question. I'm going to be very direct in my response and I don't want that to come off as being dismissive or uh, angry about this comment. I think it's a really good comment, but there are quite a few assumptions that are incorrect for how my production works. And I'll do my best to kind of unpack those and and sort of explain where there are erroneous assumptions. But essentially, you don't know what you don't know, right? And this applies to everybody, not just the person asking this question. Uh, We sort of, we, we all have a lacuna, right? We have this blind spot where the information we do not have firsthand Uh, can sometimes allow us to create explanations or have constructs in our mind that are not based on the reality if we had sort of lived in experience in something. So more than a lot of other pursuits, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about how toy making works and how plastic manufacturing works and what the limitations or requirements of those things are. Going line by line here, how much would it cost to copy and paste some of the most iconic and versatile heads from the Knights of the Slice lineup into new tooling designated for customs? Uh, The question is, why would I spend money on just rehashing an old head, right? Because I could conceivably take the 3D files for those figures, and I could move them to a new set of tooling, and I could spend tens of thousands of dollars to do that, But I think tens of thousands of dollars would be better put to doing entirely new characters or crossing off some of the goals and the new styles that I want to accomplish. I I think that it's very hard to make the case that rehashing anything from the past is going to be more compelling or more uh, financially worth it uh, than pushing forward and creating new characters. Better way to think about this is, let's say, just picking round numbers here, these are not the numbers, but let's say to do the original Old Knight, it cost me $20,000. And that was a few years ago. And that Old Knight has earned back over $20,000 of sales. So I've broken even on my investment on that. 
or maybe I've made a little bit more than $20,000 off of that single figure. If I go and take the head and I add it to a new tool, I'm adding more expense to that single character, that single style. And the project which has earned out money and returned my investment to me now is no longer earning out. It has cost me more money. So the sort of long game I play with the different styles of figures is it costs a huge amount of cash up front, but I can utilize that steel tool, that style of figure for hopefully 10 years. And every year it's making me money every time I release a figure. So adding any additional cost to any specific style of figure, that puts me back in the red in terms of profitability for a single figure or the, the cumulative effort that I've put behind a single figure. The next line here, uh, I figure it might be an interesting way to have a Swiss Army knife sprue of strictly head sculpts. So there's a lot of misconception about sprues as well. And this may or may not, I'm, I may or may not be extrapolating uh, sort of your intent with this question, but I think that sprues are a point that always needs to be clarified. So a sprue is a sort of tree branch that attaches to all of the, the sort of parts that go into an action figure. If you think of a model kit, the, the perimeter and all of the little outstretching arms, those are the sprue, and usually those are discarded when you build a model kit. Now, most people assume that action figure sprues are much like model kits in that these things sort of sit on the sprue and could conceivably be sold on the sprue or could be transported on the sprue much in the same way an ABS model kit is. And that is not the case. And, and again, you, you may or may not have sort of be, have been touching on this in your question. I just think it's good to kind of clarify sprues because it, it is a common misconception. When you're manufacturing for action figures, uh, the sprues are not constructed in the same way that they are for a model kit in that the pieces need to fall off much easier. When you're making an ABS model kit, you need those pieces to stay on and they need to stay on during shipment, during packaging, to the end consumer. It's much different for the type of toy that I make in that these sprues are made to sort of fall apart as soon as you pull them out of the mold. And so I do get questions from time to time, why don't you sell figures on the sprue? Why don't you, you know, why aren't you just offering these on the sprue for a cheaper price, X, Y, and Z? Uh, that's not, you know, that's not the way that this process sort of works. So overall, uh, I don't think there's very much sort of financial reason to uh, embark on a venture like you're outlining here. If people want to have a desert rat head on a different body, they want to have an old knight head on a hyper knight body, it's it's easy to do, right? This is a completely or largely completely compatible line and the Glio system allows you to build whatever you like. So it would be a bit redundant to sort of start dedicating my very limited tooling money to just kind of rehashing these things so that there's an easier experience for the very small portion of my audience that actually do customize. Um, you see that there, there are sort of like multiple compounding uh, issues with that decision, you know, both in the financial way and also 
in terms of the production and you know how many end users would actually utilize something like this. The bigger picture is anything that I dedicate tooling money to and any production time of which that is also a very limited resource, uh, these need to be dedicated to new projects that push Knights of the Slice forward, that uh, lay out new narrative and introduce new characters. That is sort of the, the premise for what I dedicate my limited tooling money to. And you do correctly point out that the Cherubium head is not tied to any base figure, and that is correct. It can be run by itself. But that the Cherubium head sort of came together through opportunity in that I really wanted to get this poncho done. I knew we would have to run that poncho in a much lower, uh, softer type of plastic. And we had, we were going to have to sort of split a tooling anyway, and we had additional room. So it sort of made sense at that time to push forward these animal heads. So, um, you know, I like where your head's at. I like people that enjoy the customization. Uh, but me sort of going down this path really wouldn't add anything to the experience for people that they can't sort of create for themselves already based on what's available in the market. And, you know, the secondary market, uh, especially on the Discord, is a really wonderful, fulfilling place for people to trade and get figures that they missed out on. So we're not talking about a toy line that is necessarily hard to come by if you want to put a little effort in. I know people that aren't really in the mainstream of collecting this line, they complain that things sell out and, you know, they can't just get everything they want when they want it. But you and I and everybody else, we know, like, you can find the figures you need. You, they might sell out in the initial offering, but there's a lot of ways to get a hold of these things. And just to anticipate what I sort of imagine people's follow-up question to this might be is, oh, can you just run a single head without the figure? Can you just run a single sword without the figure? Can you, you know, that's a question that pops up a lot. And just to touch on that, um, theoretically, yes, but logistically and in a practical sense, it doesn't, it's not really good to do that. Some cavities in the tools, the way they're laid out, might be able to be blocked off and you're only sort of firing molten plastic into a small portion of it, but I don't really know offhand all the combinations in which that can be applied. It, it I would have to sort of like work with the factory to determine what's possible. And if it's not possible, then they're essentially firing the entire tool, they're shooting plastic through the whole thing, and then just plucking the one piece I need and junking everything else. And to me, uh, there's a ton of different environmental reasons why I don't want them just junking plastic and running these machines if I'm not optimizing every single piece that comes out of it. You know, I've always had a every part of the buffalo mentality when it comes to my production. I try to scrap as little as possible. I try to reuse every single part I can. And, you know, that's a big cornerstone of, of how I try to be, uh, you know, a product manager in, in a sense. Next question from Daniel Hartzler. Rift 
killer, Max is said to have left the limelight of performing music on stage to compete in the gladiatorial arenas. Is this the same competition Rex is pursuing in normal combat? Um, I'm going to say sure. Although, I'll be honest with you. I thought Max was dead. I thought that Teal in his Rift Killer armor killed Max. Now, I don't know if I actually committed that to canon anywhere, or if that was just in my mind where the story was going, but um, I thought that's that's what it was. And I, I'm going to... I'm going to kick this over to Daniel because he is the sort of master of the Knights of the Slice wiki, and he has a much better understanding of these uh, these characters and their histories than I can possibly keep simultaneous in my mind. So uh, I like this idea, though, and I think that we can assume that is the case. Oh, no, it's Jerry Bow. Curious what your response would be if someone criticized your exploration of music for being non-traditional, not learning notes or chords, etc. To be clear, I don't feel that way. I would have been more close-minded and critical when I was younger, but now my general feeling is more creativity is better than less, and everyone has a different path for getting there. But I've seen discussion from time to time that criticize things like CAD, Photoshop, ZBrush, and synthesizers as shortcuts or cheating, and I would like to hear your thoughts on the subject. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. This is a, a fantastic question. So the reality is I already get criticized for my musical output. Um, there are people who just pop into stream and say something shitty and leave, whatever. Like, I've been criticized in every pursuit I've had in my in my short life. Um, some of that criticism was really warranted. I've told the tale before that I was sort of the de facto community manager for Jazzwares in the Dark Ages, and we would get slagged and piled on all day long on the very sort of rudimentary internet of the time. And a lot of those customers had very legitimate gripes. So I think having been criticized for work I was doing that I knew wasn't very good and by people who actually had a point, having spent years enduring that, uh, it sort of inoculates me from people's criticism today because honestly, who gives a shit? I think also if I was, you know, and not just me, I think, like, humans in general, if we anticipate criticism to something, we may not pursue it. So I think it's it's kind of important to push through that initial hesitancy. Because it does, you know, it can be scary to be in a public forum or streaming or, you know, posting a, a sketch on Instagram. Yeah, that can be scary because you're, you know, you are at the mercy of the anonymous horde in some cases. But um, I don't spend too much time dwelling there. I just kind of push through. And truthfully, like, if people are agitated by my music and my live streams, then that's okay, too. Th that's good. In some ways, I like doing that to people. I'm sure there are people that were not thrilled about having to read a short story and figure out a password and click a secret link in order to order a uh, secret action figure. Um, I'm sure there are people annoyed by that. But... Uh, I would say there are plenty of options. Actually, all the other options in the toy world are a much more linear process for purchasing. If anything, uh, I'm creating something memorable. Maybe it's not fun at the time, but uh, if you do figure it out, if you do crack the code, I would venture to say you'll be remembering that experience much longer than just clicking add to cart on Amazon and 
you know, getting a collectible and having it sort of collect dust for the next decade. Now, the other part that you're touching on that that is very, very interesting to me is the idea of sort of automation and programs and things like that. Are they cheating? Are they shortcuts? You know, you mentioned ZBrush versus traditional sculpting, uh, me using a synthesizer versus learning how to play chords on a guitar and, and going through that whole thing. Um, you know, I'm kind of of the mind you should be cheating and taking as many shortcuts as possible, right? Because uh, this is a world that actually rewards that. Now, all of us in the sort of American education system were told and indoctrinated from a very young age that you play by the rules and you do all the homework and you get your credentials and then everything is fine and you will be rewarded. And, you know, I'm kind of, I am of the mind that the road has run out in that regard. We live in a world where, no, actually the people that uh, take shortcuts um, get a hell of a lot farther. The people that figure out the parameters of the game and they gamify the system uh, to their advantage, those are the ones that get ahead. We're also coming into what I believe will be an age of scarcity, where people that were comfortably middle class will start to feel the squeeze of scarcity and uh, the lopsidedness of a system where so much is concentrated at the top. So in that scenario, you absolutely want to take every shortcut you can to better your material situation. I'm paraphrasing this and probably butchering it, but uh, Steve Jobs did have a uh, quote, I hope it was Steve Jobs, where he would hire lazy programmers over ones that did all their work because the lazy ones would always figure out some way around doing a traditional large workload. And I think there's really, there's something to that. And now, even though I've said all that and I'm pro-cheating and pro-shortcuts and pro- you know, jury-rigging things to to sort of expel less effort. I personally, internally, have this conflict as well, right? Like, I don't like music that's made on digital audio workstations, really heavily produced things that anybody could do from a laptop, right? Or even the OP-1, which I've showcased and is part of my arsenal, uh, you go on YouTube, there are thousands of videos of people just writing a song on the OP-1 and only utilizing that one very safe, very clinical instrument. And to me, I, I don't like music like that. And I can usually point it out and hear it automatically because there's no grit to it. There's no texture. There's no fuck-ups. It's too perfect. So um, I know that there method of writing songs is a hell of a lot easier than mine with utilizing live loop pedals and me doing every instrument every instrument myself um, I know that they have a much easier time they simply pull out one instrument and they go to work crafting a very pleasant sonic experience but um, it will always sort of lack the messiness and the chaos that I need in every piece of work that I do so I purposefully have avoided utilizing things like Ableton Live or uh, kind of master control units that have all the samples neatly put up and all the tracks arranged where you're literally just pressing one button and the entire song sort of rolls out. For me, it's much more chaotic. Everything is improvised. And uh, for me, 
it's much more rewarding. I know I only have a tiny, tiny audience that actually enjoy the noises that I'm making down in the basement, but uh, I am fully realized when I'm down there. I am a man in his element being creative. And so it is inevitable that that audience will grow. People will have no choice. This is such strong id being infused into this music. It will be unignorable at a certain point. So fantastic question. Thank you for it. Next up, my friend and yours, Gordon McKinnon Hall. How have you managed to hold on to so much of your childhood writing and drawings to use for your old heroes? Was it only once you settled in the Hudson Valley that you were able to start exploring your archives? Um, so, you know, I, I don't know why, but I always held on to these things as treasure. Um, I didn't always sort of have my archive move with me everywhere I've moved because I've lived in a lot of different places. Uh, you know, I've lived in a lot of shitty apartments, uh, an apartment that famously burned down. Like, I've been on the move a lot in my young life, as I think most people are. And so I, I think my mother held on to uh, two banker boxes of my childhood drawings. And she probably did this for my sisters as well. I, I, I don't think it's anything um, that odd about it. But um, it also survived a stepmother purge, right? I had this stepmom that went up into our attic and just threw everything away. All my toys, all our plush animals, just entirely cleaned house. And I think it was a sort of malicious, intentional thing, but who knows after all these years. So I did actually lose a, a portion of my childhood, but I think that was largely not paper stuff. I think that was, you know, at that point, uh, like, man, I had a ton of Fisher-Price toys. You know, stuff that would be very valuable now. All gone. I'll throw it out. But this paper stuff, uh, it endured. And um, I actually had it sent up from my mother's house to me probably a little bit before Knights of the Slice. And I was just in a tiny apartment in Queens, so I didn't have a ton of room. Um, but... Uh, I just knew this was valuable stuff. I knew this, this, these were the things I would grab in a fire. Everything else is sort of negligible. Everything else can be rebought. But this archive of my childhood thoughts and characters and stories, that is invaluable to me. Now, the good news is I have almost all of it digitized at this point. There's probably a few gaps. Um, you know, if those, those of you who saw my, uh, my sort of lens story on Patreon, I found the old dice and card game I came up with when I was, you know, 10 years old. That was something I, I don't think I had sort of photographed or backed up at that point. So I, I think largely it's just, it's been luck. I think that the archive not being with me during my 20s when it probably would have been the most susceptible to damage or being thrown out or things like that, that was probably a good thing. Uh, and then now just having the space to hold on to these things and more importantly, spread them out on a big wooden table and, and kind of look at everything. Like it, it is an endless well. Uh, I would hate to part with the physical copies, but, um, you know, I, I think I would survive. God forbid if that ever happens. But um, 
yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess I just always, I loved writing and drawing so much. I always held those things as treasure and that never wavered for me. And so thankfully they're still in my possession. And, uh, you know, on this, on this note, I was actually thinking about, uh, releasing as it is the Marley and Harley, uh, comics. Now these were very, very crude comics done on lined notebook paper while I was in high school and middle school. And they're not very good, quite frankly, but I thought there's so much of them just collecting them in one volume as an ebook might be interesting for you guys. So if that's something you would like to read, even though they're pretty terrible, but pretty long and comprehensive, and I think an interesting story arc, um, you guys let me know and uh, I will contemplate that. I will ponder that. Next question from Brent Lawson. For the patrons that paid for a full year of Action Figure Month, when will the 13th figure ship? The good news is that 13th figure is shipping with the January-February crates. I had a small stroke of luck and was able to get the last component I needed prior to Chinese New Year cutoff. And so it's already packed up. It's already heading to you. If you are the $30 full year tier member who signed up in December, you will get one of these bonus 13th figures. So you're going to get in your mailbox three figures, not just two. That's pretty exceptional. The same caveat applies as I listed, uh, you know, at the end of last year. There's only one 13th figure per address. So if you're a $50 tier person, I'm sorry there was not enough to go around. It is one 13th figure per person who signed up for the full year in December prior to January 1st. Also a quick side note, I really like the 13th figure. Um, I think it's a very clever character. I think it adds something to the overall story. So it's not just kind of a throwaway. Uh, and there's a little piece of, uh, there's a little doodle about him included with your box. So I think you guys are going to like that. Will the 13th figure, I know this is going to be the next question. Will the 13th figure be available for purchase for people that did not get to sign up within that time frame? Um, it depends. Uh, maybe it might take shape in a different way. Uh, I don't want to say much more than that because I don't want to sort of give it away, but um, the character itself will likely make an appearance at some point uh, in the distant future. We got a fantastic question in the Tomimoto zone, thanks to Lance Tomimoto, and I got to tell you guys, fantastic questions this week. All of them are firing my brain in a really positive way. So, Lance's question is, what were your influences for the Jagged Age? Uh, he's speaking about Cray and Hob and, and that whole world and storyline. Uh, was it an RPG? Was it Dungeons and Dragons? Was it Berserk? Question mark. So, Jagged Age is, I think, a, a, an incredibly unique fantasy concept. Because I had not actually played Dungeons and Dragons. It was strictly forbidden. I grew up during the Satanic Panic, and uh, there was nobody around me that played it. Um, you know, it was it was literally like a banned book. Like, you, you know, it was just not happening um, in my sort of orbit. I, I really miss that I didn't have it, exposure to it until I was like 30 or something, because I think I would have had a really fun time as a kid and as a young storyteller. But... That's what makes Jagged Age unique because I am not 
bound to the trappings of D&D. And that is a very heavy burden. You know, D&D is so just everywhere in fantasy. It is redefined how we think about the genre, that it is inescapable. But for me, um, this this is how a lot of the storylines and the characters for Jagged Age came about. I would go on AOL, and there was a uh, chat room, I think it was called the Green Dragon Inn, which I, I believe is a Hobbit reference, but this was essentially a D&D role-playing game, and, and there was a little dice prompt you could type into the chat, and it would roll a 20-sided die or whatever die you specified. So I would sort of go to this inn, and I would hang out, and my persona was Cray, and uh, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know what the fucking dice did. I didn't know, you know, how to battle anyone. I didn't know what the weapons were. I had no fucking idea what I was doing. So I was just sort of bouncing around with, you know, flailing around, trying to, like, figure out what was going on. And I would go on quests with people, and they would sort of walk me through, and I made friends on there. And uh, keep in mind, this was when AOL was still paid. So I was incurring a very heavy phone bill every second I was doing this. I actually got in a lot of trouble for that, um, but that's besides the point. So really the the early inspiration, and I still have the chat logs printed out, by the way, somewhere. Um, the inspiration, the foundation of Cray and the Jagged Age is somebody who knows nothing about D&D trying to navigate in a D20-centric world, right? And, and I think that that sets it up for being something different. Now, it's no surprise that I have struggled with how to, where to go next with Jagged Age, because I do want to keep that premise intact. I don't want it to look or feel like Dungeons & Dragons. I don't want it to look and feel like any other piece of fantasy. That's not interesting to me. So... Uh, I have sort of meticulously for several years been plotting how do I do things different in the fantasy genre. I have to tell you it is extremely difficult because it is relatively a shallow genre. There is not a ton of variation you can do within that, that sort of setting. So I hope you find that interesting. The Jagged Ages is sort of everything I misunderstood about Dungeons & Dragons. And, uh, you know, in a lot of respects, it, it is a creation of its own. It's a creation through the misunderstanding of a world that everybody else around me sort of already understood. Next question, Gavin Rader. Would you consider recording a podcast of your written stories? I'd be game for an audio version of Normal Combat Volume 1 and 2, perhaps incorporating your music to help set the mood. Those longer stories read aloud would be nice addition slash alternative to the digital booklets. As a busy individual who prefers the podcast format, it would be fun to listen to these stories, sort of harken back to the Sermon of the Leviathan. Um, Look, I love this uh, idea. And as one busy individual to another... I think you'll understand the biggest impediment to doing this is just my schedule, of which there there is no time. Um, I more than love this idea. I've actually done extensive planning in this direction. There was a brief window where I was going to do a sort of 
a live radio play of Turbo Atoll, utilizing the the nice folks in my D&D group, we were going to sort of do a scripted live read of it. Uh, obviously, never came to pass because everything, uh, the demands of this job sort of have provided me with very little breathing room for something uh, that ambitious. Uh, the other thing is, um, a podcast like Dostazapati's conversational, I leave in all the pauses, it is very informal and rather sloppy, but it is very immediate and can be satisfying in that regard. A radio play or, uh, you know, a sort of spoken word version of my comics, it needs extensive editing. You yourself said there should be music. I agree with that. That's a whole nother layer of sort of post-production that would have to be done and would at this point have to be done by me. So, um, I'm with you. I would love to see this stuff. Uh, I don't see it happening anytime soon just because it would ultimately be up to me to sort of to uh, plot this all out. And uh, unfortunately, I don't have the time. Next up is Matt Connolly. The Crack the Code in Normal Combat 2 Chapter 1 was so much fun to unlock Beowulf. Will you include more of these fun puzzles in the future for Patreon Squires? Uh, so for those who don't know, I recently debuted a very early chapter of the sequel to Normal Combat, Normal Combat 2, and within there was baked a secret link. And that secret link brought you to a password prompt, which was not spelled out for you. You had to deduce what the password was from the short story you just read. And uh, people got it pretty quickly. I was actually surprised. And then, of course, as as goes, uh, word spread and other people shared the password and uh, people got in and were able to pre-order this secret figure. Um, so there, people probably have a lot of questions about Beowulf and the figure and will he see a public sale and things like that. I have plenty of plans for Beowulf in the future. If you miss this little puzzle, you know, I wouldn't be too stressed about it. Uh, he will be pretty front and center in the storytelling uh, later this year, but it may be a while before we kind of get to him, so please be patient in that regard. Uh, but the question at the top was, will I include more of these puzzles in the future? I would like to. I'm inclined to. Uh, I would like to hear what you guys think. Is it too frustrating of an experience, or is it something that kind of shakes out the doldrums of uh, modern life? I want to know from you, so just uh, please share your thoughts. Next question from Paul Ware. I was organizing my shelves today and realized the gold star marshal came with clear cherubium heads and a gold face, but no gold helmet. Is this a piece you're saving for something specific, specific, or one that just hasn't spoken to you yet? Uh, this is a very specific piece. I have something very specific in mind. And uh, it may be a while before we see that piece surface, but uh, it will go to good use, I assure you. Next up, our friend Froy, our Sega, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Any plans for future hand-painted releases similar to Hollow Marson? Could you provide some insight into that particular project? Materials used, specific setup slash planning, etc. If this has been addressed previously, a reference to that particular pod or post would be appreciated. Um, yeah, I did do a breakdown of what went into that Hollow Marson. Uh, I believe if you search 
under the hashtag Marson on Patreon, which granted is not the easiest thing to do uh, with the format of the platform, but if you manage to do that, it will bring up that walkthrough. I did a lot of behind the scenes photos of the enormous prep work that went into creating that figure. It was a, a bit absurd. Uh, more to the point of your question, I, I would love to do more hand-painted figures. Um, it is, you know, the again, the only impediment to that is just my limited time. Um, so those are always very, very labor-intensive. Um, you know, I don't know when I will have a gap in my schedule where I could conquer something like that. And at the moment, I don't know what that thing would be necessarily. Um, it's kind of hard to, you know, a character like Marson, especially where his story was at the point I released that hollow figure, it was very important. That was like the peak of that character's importance. Um, so, you know, that, if I have another character that is reaching that zenith of their importance, then yeah, it would be a good idea to do a hand-painted thing. But, um, uh, you know, sometimes I can't always see where their stories are going until, you know, just right before. And yes, I forgot to turn off my phone, and that was a uh, text message. Next up, Sean Gordon. Will any chance we will see the silver jumpsuit used on the Jasmine Frankenslice make it to the store? Uh, absolutely. I just don't know when. I was sort of hip-pocketing the remainder of those silver suits in case I came up with a cool Frankenslice that uh, I think would be worthy of them. Uh, but if I don't come up with one in the next couple months, I, I will just put them unceremoniously up in the material store. Um, it's a really nice sort of sheen. I don't. You know, most people may not have gotten their hands on one of them, but uh, I like that material. I think it's it's pretty impressive. Next up, Ryan Rusby. There were some really weird, amazing, and amazingly horrible products on the shelves next to Magic the Gathering at the start of the pre-Pokemon collectible card game scene. Do you have any specific collectible card game memories from the first glut of product that we got in the 90s? Alternate or bonus question, explain Pogs to the kids. Well, I'll have you know I was in a Pog, official Pog uh, tournament in which I lost in the first round. I was like five or six years older than every kid playing Pogs at the time. And uh, I got fucking demolished, lost my Pogs, and was kicked out of the tournament. Um, I mean, Pogs were the hot collectible. They were based on milk caps, which was a sort of Hawaiian traditional game. They would Kids would sort of take the caps to uh, milk bottles and stack them and slam them. Uh, I was big into Pogs, and I was just slightly kind of too old to be into Pogs, but I remember, I have this vivid memory, uh, my two friends, Jason and Dennis, we were like obsessed with Aliens and Predator, and this was before any of the bad movies had come out for those brands, so we would like make, we would take Game Pro Magazine and cut out the artwork of Aliens and Predators and make our own Pogs, and then Jason got uh, Atari Jaguar, and we could play the the Alien and Predator game, and it was just, like, mind-blowing. It was, you know, way too cool. But, um, I still have a couple Pogs. I, I don't mind picking them up when I see them. They're utterly pointless. I actually sourced, uh, Pogs for Nights of the Slice, and then the printer went out of business before I could place my order. Very, uh, weird experience. But anyway, um, you know, 
Pogs are pointless, and I love them quite a bit. More to the question, uh, I actually did not get into Magic the Gathering at all, and I was kind of aged out at that point. I was starting to get into uh, stealing cigarettes and drinking booze and chasing girls and stuff like that. So I, I missed the boom of collectible card games. Um, Bobby Torres of This Toy Life coerced me into buying a starter set of the Star Wars collectible card game. Uh, and I think we played one time and then I never used them again. I, I just never, uh, still to this day, it's kind of elusive for me. I, 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 uh, don't know or understand collectible card games in a bigger sense. That's sort of why I'm doing this card project myself. I, I think it's interesting to approach these things as an outsider and what can you sort of simplify, uh, you know, what kind of creative chaos can you bring to a genre that is not near and dear to your heart, right? Um, so that's why I'm kind of experimenting with a card battle game, and uh, I'm, I'm definitely grooving on it. I'm, I'm feeling good vibes from it. I think I'm going to start test printing a couple of the cards, um, and we can kind of, you know, we can all beta test it together. So uh, looking forward to that. But good question. I, I just don't have much of a frame of reference to, uh, to, you know, give you an interesting answer. Next up is Quentin Russo. You mentioned a Gordon Freeman project a few years ago. Any concept, uh, sorry, any concept art you could share? I'm pretty much convinced nobody cares about four-inch scale Half-Life figures, which is a damn shame. Maybe Super 7 will come through someday. Um, I don't, I think I'm still bound by confidentiality, and I can't show those. I, I think that my agreement would prevent me from doing that, unfortunately. Uh, we didn't get very far. I think we had a sort of rough sculpt from Erwin Papa of Gordon Freeman. Uh, we were much further along with Team Fortress. We had, like, printed paint masters of, of those figures. Um, it is kind of a damn shame. I would have loved to see all those brands represented in 4-inch and in Mega Merge, uh, but it just didn't, came, it just didn't uh, come to pass. Also, we got, you know, a pretty polar reception from retail on those brands. And I think part of the reason is that uh, Steam is kind of like an island onto itself, right? There's not a ton of Steam merchandise that really moves in the brick-and-mortar stores, you know, like whether it's FYE or... Uh, GameStop or, you know, Target. Um, Steam kind of like is their own little ecosystem. There's not a ton of product out there that is particularly um, compelling to brick and mortar retailers. They would rather kind of get on board with brands that they sell a lot of, like, you know, Nintendo or Hello Kitty or things like that. So it was kind of an interesting uh, process because I love those games and I thought they would just be a no-brainer for any buyer and, uh, you know, got quite the opposite sort of response. So, um, you know, it, it, you never know uh, what the perception of these buyers are necessarily on a brand, and uh, they are ultimately the people that decide what's on store shelves.
round off this episode, we got a couple more questions. Thomas Bucci, in terms of commons versus rares, what Night of the Slice figures had the highest production numbers and what Night of the Slice figures had the lowest production numbers? Uh, So I don't really share what the production runs are. Uh, I've always uh, tried to just give estimates. There's a myriad of reasons why I don't want those numbers uh, to be shared. Lots of considerations there. But I can say generally, uh, everything in the first year of Knights of the Slice, with the exception of the goods that went to Kickstarter or went to Hastings, uh, everything after that is going to be our lowest numbers. And then every production wave thereafter got slowly and incrementally larger and larger to where we are today. So uh, I know that's deliberately vague, but um, that's the best information I can give. Next up from Gabe Tovar, any new purchases, any new toy purchases, I should say, out there that you are excited to get your hands on? Um, The short answer is no, (laughs) right? And I think that's kind of sad. There's not a whole lot of uh, innovation or anything interesting happening at at the sort of toy world and um you know part of that could be just my shifting taste part of it could be i'm not really sort of uh following much the uh the output of the disney's of the world right i'm I'm a little bit out of touch with i guess there's a hawkeye series um you know book of boba fett i tried to watch didn't really didn't click for me so, you know, the majority of this sort of noise and the coverage and product is being dedicated to these bigger things, and I'm kind of uh, tuned out. But if we slightly adjust the definition of a toy to include not just plastic play things, but something you could play with, like, say, a visualizer for audio equipment, then I am actually looking uh, having very excited feelings about getting my hands on a toy, quote-unquote, which is um, a graphics visualizer. I believe it's called IZ, And essentially, this plugs into your audio mixer or your output. And through the tweaking of knobs, you can create a whole bunch of abstract, pixelated patterns and stuff. And uh, I imagine this to then be hooked up to my projector... So while I'm playing live music, I can also be manipulating the visuals that are happening there. I know I've spoken to a couple of squires whose bread and butter is a sort of a theatrical audiovisual, very complex sort of, um, you know, translating sound into random visuals and things like that. I'm not quite prepared to uh, go into such a complex process just yet, but... There seems to be a interesting little metal box that can scratch the itch uh, for me. So that I'm looking forward to getting my hands on, and I think it will up the stakes of the uh, live streams. Hopping over to the Facebook for one quick question that I did miss. This is in regards to the Saima full packs that were offered in the store previously. I disclosed to people that um, the two green styles of Saima full packs, uh, one with blonde hair, one with a darker sort of blue colored hair. Um, Their code names during the factory process were Forest, which is no surprise for the blonde because that did indeed become the Forest figure later on, and Millie, 
for the other version with a darker skin complexion and uh, sort of dark blue hair. That character's sort of code name during production was Millie, short for military. It's a kind of olive drab, uh, green and brown color scheme. So yeah, I just needed some kind of signifier to, um, you know, when I'm staring at boxes and the names written on cardboard boxes, I need to ascertain immediately what is inside this box. So I try to have descriptive names uh, associated with colors. Um, Tyler Nishkanen asked, uh, any plans of using that character, Millie, down the line? Um, I would say no. It, the character of Millie doesn't necessarily exist, right? All those parts got atomized and used for a bunch of different Franken slices. So there is no, there was no core character when I was ordering that. Rather, it was just a color scheme I really liked and part colors that I felt would sort of be useful at some point in the future. So, um, Millie, as it were, does not exist unless, of course, people out there want to create uh, the narrative for that character on their own, which uh, I fully bless. And before I sign off, uh, Nightmare Alley is on HBO, finally. This is Guillermo del Toro's new film. Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, uh, Rooney Mara. Um, fantastic film. Really, really fantastic film. I find Guillermo del Toro's films to be a little schmaltzy at times. This one is quite reserved and quite subtle. It is a remake, I think, of an old black and white film. Um, fantastic. Really, really fantastic. And it is, uh, you know, it, it starts off, um, it's kind of like prior to World War II and then during World War II. And there are beautiful, beautiful sets of Art Deco. Just, you know, the pinnacle of the Western world. Gorgeous to look at. A lot of uh, trick lighting that they used in noir films, which, you know, it's it. Uh, I like seeing, but it is so out of place in modern cinema. Um, but I was really, really impressed. I give this an A or A+, plus, like a, a pretty phenomenal movie. Uh, I would love to see more noir films. But the biggest thing I took from watching this film was that Guillermo del Toro should 100% be doing a Bioshock film. This is like eerily close to what a Bioshock film would be in some respects and um, just he nails the aesthetics oh Richard Jenkins also is is in it he has a really great role um, phenomenal movie I, I was super impressed did not hear a lot of people talking about this film uh, you know I I was kind of like a little worn out on Del Toro I thought Shape of Water was good I didn't think it was sort of worth the aplomb that it got and, and, you know, the endless chattering of what an amazing film it was. Uh, but this one, you know, I really, really like, he, he's sort of, he's leaning more into, uh, the actors and subtlety and, and, uh, you know, I guess he's always been an actor's director, but in this one, it's, his style is very much reeled in. There's still those little flourishes, the little, parades of the grotesque that he likes so much but um very much a reserved film in that respect and uh i thought it was great and i would highly recommend it and i would love to hear what you guys think of both irma veep but also um nightmare alley because i think uh it's two great films 
you can watch while we're entering into this wonderful third year of the pandemic. Now, to play us out of this episode, we have the wonderful band that everybody's talking about, Zed Star 7, with their new song, Pyramid Schemes. Enjoy. And pizza out.
Father.